Good evening, wherever you are, and thank you for joining us on the Just Like the Movies podcast. We are here to do a hard target search of every residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, and doghouse in the area. I'm doing it. I don't even. It. I don't even know if that was right, but I just wanted to try to try to rip it off. But uh, I am joined to discuss this uh, very entertaining, very popular film from 1993, The Fugitive, with the treasurer of the New England chapter of the Harrison Ford fan club, and that would be Johnny. Johnny, <laughs> how you doing today, man? It wasn't me. <laughs> it was the one-armed man. <laughs> That's a good reference. <laughs> um. Was that the mask? Yeah. 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 Um, we're not doing the mask, uh, nor nor is that my pick for next, uh, next week. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think the mask would hold up well. I, 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 don't, I, I don't think I would enjoy that as much as I did when I was 11. We would do 90 minutes on wondering why Cameron Diaz peaked on her first movie. Um, <laughs> from, the, from the physical persuasion. Ooh tough but fair yeah. Yeah. yeah um yeah so that so so uh this are seven percent of our audience that are are women just turned off so yeah, i yeah. apologize for that but uh it's all jokes and all fun with with uh certainly some truth in there but here we are to talk about the fugitive man yeah our first harrison ford movie you kind of uh ran me through the gauntlet of guilt that i hadn't <laughs> picked a ford movie yet so um and and well deserved you know he he, I, he is my favorite actor and i wasn't uh I don't know. Just I didn't, you know, come across uh, his on on our list yet. But I'm glad you did because um, the fugitive. You know, it's been a long time since I've sat down and watched the fugitive front to back. I have to say, and um, I love this movie. It it just has such watchability to it. it it's always moving, and the cat and mouse aspect of it has done so well. Uh, so I'm really excited to dive into it. I think one of Harrison Ford's better movies, one of his better performances. Um, and yeah, almost 30 years old now. Uh, but, uh, like we like to say on this podcast, we typically only do movies that we enjoy. And I, I certainly think this movie holds up quite well against, uh, things that have come since then that uh, are similar in vain, um, to it, uh, including its sequel of sorts, U.S. Marshals, which we may dip our toe into who knows, uh, later on during this podcast, but it's good to see you, buddy. Um, we are. What's today? So we're, we're putting this out either tomorrow or Tuesday. You and I are hanging out pretty soon, man. We're a few weeks away from from hanging out, so I'm really excited about that. Yeah, we're, our listeners might not care, but I care. <laughs> yeah, we should be able to get one more episode in before we uh, check out what the Poconos is all about. And I, I don't yeah. know. I've never been there, so it's just seemed like kind yeah. of a. It seemed like it was more equidistant at the time, but it's really like two hours from you guys and like six hours from me. So, <laughs> yeah, and it, you know, if we if we got falsely accused of killing someone, Poconos might be a good hideout. So it's good to stake it out and, and check out you know the local uh, establishments so that in the event something like that happens to one of us, likely you more than me, uh, that's a good place to to lay low for a while. I mean, I guess I'll just take that. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> all right man so uh fugitive you picked it mm -hmm. um was there any reason why you picked it or you just were going through our list and you're like "Ooh, gotta do fugitive and how's your rewatch like like bring me up to speed on on your experience with fugitive. this was a late addition to the list i was um when when i watched jaws and was you know thinking about it and doing the research about it and it kept talking about you know it, you know 
it, you come to the conclusion yourself or you you do do your research but it kept talking about the birth of the blockbuster the birth of the blockbuster for whatever reason this was the first movie that popped in my head I don't know why because I mean it, it was a big movie in 93 it was the third highest grossing movie at the time behind uh, Mrs. Doubtfire and Jurassic Park which uh, Harrison Ford actually turned down to do this movie which I uh, thought was pretty fascinating because this movie yeah, was it had a really chaotic development <clears throat> cycle even by Hollywood standards we'll get into that in a little bit um, I, I just remember this was one of the movies I saw with my family um, you know, we, that was something we used to do a lot, especially when I was uh, when I was younger. We would all go and check out movies. It was like I don't want to say it's one of the few things we did together, because then it sounds like I'm posting for sympathy on like a YouTube comment thread or like a Reddit thread, and then I'm waiting for somebody to be like, "Oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you," because my life is so empty. I'm looking for validation from internet strangers. Um, <laughs> but people, wait, people do that. <laughs> They made a book out of that? Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it was just, a, it was something I thought of, and I, it was a movie I watched a lot when I was younger. It was on HBO all the time, and I think it's still on HBO Max. I don't I don't know if that's where you watched it, or if you just watched it. Is. Oh, okay. Or if you yeah. watched it in one of the private repositories that we were good enough to have <laughs> uh, access to. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, it, I just thought about it, and then I, I just thought, yeah, the little needle about picking a Harrison Ford movie before you. I don't know. Both, all those things led me to picking this film, but I am, uh, you know, it held up very well for me. I um, a few minor criticisms of, of among a sea of uh, really praiseworthy elements of the film, like you meant. You mentioned the cat and mouse, how they they were able to do that without it being too ridiculous and maintaining tension, and um, you know, they had. You know, Harrison Ford is this intelligent quarry, and then you have Tommy Lee Jones on the flip side of the coin as the uh, U.S. Marshal is tracking him, Samuel Gerard, who's just as intelligent in, in, a, in a different way, but they're you know they're equally matched, and um, I mean that that was one of the many things that this movie did really well. But uh, no, I, I that was that's basically my reasoning for picking it, and. I just thought it was something a little different. But for, I don't know why, but for some reason, I just thought Summer Blockbuster, the first movie I thought of was The Fugitive. I don't know why. but uh, Yeah, I'm with you 100% on how they portrayed everyone in the movie. There wasn't... Because like, I, I, I don't know that I could cite a specific example at the top of my head, but we see it a lot where like the police or FBI or whoever are just like these stumbling, fumbling clowns and the protagonist of the movie is this super genius like like (laughs) macgyver you know like just they like these guys what made this movie so good is these guys were very good at their job and he just gets away every time sort of thing they're on to him the whole way he he doesn't he he's not like leagues ahead of them and in fact in most instances they're they're ahead of him um and and he just happens to fall into good fortune or you know, there happens to be the sewer there or he takes a, a suicide dive, you know, like th- this isn't a thing where it's, you know, superhero protagonist like, you know, every diehard after diehard. You you know, this is this this is pretty grounded uh, for the most part. It is over the top in some scenes because you have to because it's an action movie. But in terms of the the cat and mouse, I'm 100 percent with you, Mike. I'm glad you you um, represented that because. I think that is really what makes this movie so great and why it's held up so well is you believe that these guys are, you know, uh, 
U.S. Marshals and that they're at the top of their game. They are the ones that should be assigned to uh, this case. Would so you, I, 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 uh, before we get back to the topic at hand, would you give us would you give us all a little uh, little Murdoch since you mentioned MacGyver? <laughs> <laughs> okay, for the six people who know this reference, <laughs> here's Murdoch from MacGyver. MacGyver. Thank you. <laughs> that guy was like that guy was Kenny from South Park before Kenny from South Park. That guy died fifteen times in MacGyver. Every time he showed up with more third degree burns on his body. What was there was the, the the episode I think you're referencing is he falls off a cliff and then his next yes. reappearance it's like MacGyver is like hanging out in a cabin with a lady friend and he like kicks down the door with a flamethrower. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah, and he has like burn marks on him or whatever. I had yeah. I should have watched more MacGyver coming up. Um, oh my god! But anyway, this, um, you know this isn't yeah. some half-assed Michael DeBar appreciation podcast. Oh my god! <laughs> you got the name too. Yeah, I think that, that's the actor who played Murdoch, right? Yeah, I think he was. Um, yes, it is, <laughs> and I think he. I know him also. The only thing, other thing I know him from is he plays uh, the. Um, the manager at a restaurant in Seinfeld. Nice. Very nice. Um, anyway. Wait, but anyway. Yeah, if anybody else wants to weigh in on how much they love MacGyver, you know, Twitter, at Just the Movies. Instagram, Just Like the Movies Pod. You know, those are the two right. two main social media platforms we use to varying degrees of success. But, um, yeah, you mentioned the uh, the U.S. Marshals being competent. And, like, one of the things that I, I really enjoyed when I was watching the movie is how the team had... I'm not going to say a shorthand, but they, they definitely did a an economical job of portraying them as competent. Like, they would all split up and do their things, and um, he wouldn't have to give... Uh, Tommy Lee Jones' character wouldn't have to give all that much direction. And another thing that really jumped out at me was just how they did... It was not a sympathetic portrayal of the Chicago Police Department. And because you're definitely not going to get that when you cast the scumbag who played Wurtz in The Dark Knight as one of your lead detectives. <laughs> <laughs> fucking good, Ron, good, good call. Fucking Ron Dean, who's been working with the uh, uh, Andrew Davis, who a lot of people might not know this, but when Johnny and I did a little bit of pregame talk after our last episode, Andrew Davis, who directed this movie, is a big Chicago guy. Like He's originally from that area, and a lot of the movies that he has directed are set there. He actually directed a movie that had a lot of these. It had Tommy Lee Jones and Ron Dean in it a few years ago, uh, before this. It was called The Package, and it was set in Chicago. I've never seen that one, but I did see Steven Seagal's debut, which was Above the Law, which was which was an Andrew Davis film, and it was filmed in Chicago. But interestingly mm-hmm. enough, the the idea to film in Chicago didn't come from him. He was picked for the project, and actually Harrison Ford wanted it to be filmed in Chicago. And it had to do. Oh, wow. It had to do with. Uh, I guess he grew up in the area, and he went to. Uh, I think it was Ripon College. Uh, if I'm saying that right, in uh, Wisconsin, and he would come back there for summer jobs. And he said that Chicago had everything a movie like this would need. It had the. It had charm. It had grit. It had the lake. It had all these all these different elements that he thought could be good for a you know a successful chase movie. Um, as far as the, de- I, I alluded to the uh, chaotic development cycle. I mean, this movie was in development hell. It went through nine writers, I think. It was twenty-five different script drafts. I mean, they were still 
kind of rewriting it on the fly. The movie's actually a lot more improv heavy than I realized, and a lot of other people who watched the movie might have realized right. at the time. Um, because they were constantly, uh, uh, Jeb Stewart of Die Hard fame was one, yes. of the, one of the writers on set, and he was constantly re reworking scenes with Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones having the most input, being the, the two leads. Um, I mean, the movie was, it, it got the dreaded turnaround. It was in turnaround, and then um, it went through a couple different kind of iterations before Harrison Ford signed on to the project. And one of them was, I think Alec Baldwin was the first choice to be. Eric Baldwin. <laughs> Which, again, I, I every time Alec Baldwin's name comes up, uh, somebody will probably been. It's probably only been like three times, but I feel somebody like somebody gets shot. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't even gonna do that. Um, no. But sorry. No, it's fine. Uh, I, I'm not gonna. I'm certainly not gonna admonish you for that. I. I, uh, I. I. It's just so interesting. All the things like the big things Alec Baldwin was a part of or could have been a part of and chose not to be. It's it's almost like the bizarro Mel Gibson game we used to play on here. How Mel Gibson could have been in all these parts, but he already had he, he had an amazing career. There was like just no physical way he could have done all the parts that he was considered for and all that stuff. Right. But Alec Baldwin, you know, he turned down Batman. He turned like he gave up the Jack Ryan franchise, which was taken over by H. Ford. Um, you know, he turned down this movie supposedly, or maybe he, I don't know how, if he turned it down or if he was uh, a leading candidate and somehow he fell out of favor. Uh, then at some point they, they wanted to do it with Kevin Costner, but then Kevin Costner wanted to do Wyatt Earp. I mean, Kevin Costner is good. Like if you've ever seen no way out, like that's one of the best cat and mouse movies ever. And it's him opposite Gene Hackman. And so he, I think he could have been good in this, uh, Baldwin. I'm not a big Alec Baldwin fan. Um, I, I don't know that I would have liked him in this role. Um, and not, this is going to be a hot take for this podcast. I'm not the biggest Tommy Lee Jones fan either. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know. How do you feel? How did that settle in? How do you feel about that? I don't, I, I don't, uh, I, I kind of looked at Tommy Lee Jones a lot differently when I heard all those behind the scenes stories from Batman Forever, like when he was, <laughs> and plus the fact that he was Al Gore's roommate at whatever Ivy League school they went to, I think it was Harvard. I just oh really yeah, it's just for some reason hearing all that stuff as I got older, I kind of got this idea in my head that even by actor like you know in, in contrast to not to not to kiss his ass too much, but in contrast to Harrison Ford who. He kind of treats, even though he's been, you know, he's made a ton of money and he's rich and he's fa like famous and he just seems to treat acting like a job. He never comes out and says this shit like about how, you know, how sometimes actors talk about how they're, oh, they're telling stories and they're changing lives and, you know, it's important. You're so brave. <laughs> it's important to get these messages out. And it's it's like, I I don't. I don't remember Harrison Ford ever saying any shit like that on a press junket. No. And for some reason, Tommy Lee Jones, I could picture him uh, kind of like, like when he, you, you, like talk, talk to Jim Carrey, who's known, who at the time was the biggest comedy star in the world. And tell, I can't sanction your buffoonery. It's like, what do you, what do you yeah. think you all are doing? Like, right. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know, because uh, the only other thing I really associate Tommy Lee Jones with that I really enjoyed was Under Siege, which, 
There's another Andrew Davis directed that the year before this. And Harrison Ford actually signed on to the project because he liked what Andrew Davis did with Under Siege. So so that's kind of an interesting fact. Harrison Ford got involved with The Fugitive because he liked what a director did with a Steven Seagal movie. Go figure. Yeah, that that is kind of crazy and hard to believe, you know. But um I you know, Harrison Ford, it's interesting because I I feel like I mean two points. I feel like the Academy just like never liked him because he wasn't really a Hollywood guy, so to speak. I mean, he lives in, you know, Santa Monica or whatever, but it's just like that the fact that he didn't get nominated for this, but Tommy Lee Jones wins an Oscar for best supporting actor when I think Harrison Ford like was incredible in this movie and he got nominated for Witness, didn't win that, and he hasn't really been close since. Uh, which is kind of a bummer, and I, I know he probably doesn't really care that much about awards or that so, that sort of thing. But I'm sure he'd like to, you know, have been recognized for um, some of his work. Um, so I don't know Harrison Ford. It's like he's the biggest like movie star ever for a lot of people. Maybe Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, whatever. It's arguable, but he just seems like the the every man's big movie star, though, for the reasons you say. Like he he does a lot of like. Uh, genuine blue collar work and he's a pilot and there's stories about him helping rescue people and he does uh, you know like he, he like you said he treats it he doesn't glamorize the the idea of being a movie star and he, he he's very people say he's grumpy and stuff but I think he just doesn't like the the phoniness of like those interviews and those stock questions that he gets asked and he's probably he, he'd probably find it uh like more entertaining if, if someone interviewing him offered him a stick of gum or something as opposed to saying like so what it feel like being in this movie <laughs> he's like fucking kill me and then he's got it's like i gotta do like 18 more of these today um he's like oh i have to go on jimmy fallon i'm gonna dress up as a fucking hot dog <laughs> did he do that yeah, i think so or no he was a hot dog dog that's what it was he was dressed as a hot dog but he also had a dog nose on uh, it was one of those shows. I don't know if it was Conan or, or, or Fallon or whatever, but it's just like he has a really good sense of humor. I, I, I think Harrison Ford's so funny, but people are like they just think he's this, this grumpy guy. But, um, you know, this was him. Like, it's funny. He was in his early 50s when he did this movie. And this is like a decade after Star Wars, literally a decade after Star Wars. And he, you know, had had finished Indiana Jones trilogy uh, four years prior but he's still like he, he was getting into this new prime, you know. He was doing the Clancy stuff and all these other you know big movies, and you know, right around the corner is Air Force One and and that sort of stuff. He like dominated the '90s box office even without those big franchises, and and this was like a, like the the big one of the non-franchise stuff he did, and it's, it's just such a good movie, man. And I, it's funny because I was looking at the writers and. Uh, the director and I was looking at their resumes and stuff. I'm like, this it's like again, like one of those movies, like because we've done movies like this where it's like, you know, it, it's a great movie, but like, what what else has that person done? And it's not much. And it makes me think, Mike. I don't know if you agree that when they brought in Jeb Stewart, he's the one who really made this what it is. Because I look at you know Die Hard, and I'm like, oh okay, like this guy gets gets how to write those types of stories. Because Die Hard is sort of cat and mouse in that way. Because they're trying to find John McClane. It happens to be in that one building, but they're still trying to find him and he's you know, averting them. And you can see similarities in between The Fugitive and Die Hard when you realize that the guy who wrote Die Hard was involved with this picture too. 
Yeah, that's that's an interesting uh, parallel you drew because I uh, I know I I mentioned the the just a lot even by Hollywood standards the pre production for this was just chaotic and and it was kind of um, all the chaos that went into you know Jeb Stewart was the guy like I mentioned it, you know, neither of us were there obviously but my understanding of it was he was the guy that was on set and they were just reworking stuff all the time on the fly and then. Mm the it was the same thing with the edit with and the movie was shot in 73 days or something it was actually ahead of schedule but they they were very uh stringent about the budget the budget was about 44 million i think the most expensive thing i think they did was the train crash scene which they actually did with a real train i don't know if you knew that or not i i because i guess they figured out it was cheaper to do that do it that way than with miniatures I, and they blue screened his uh his like jump right and superimposed him yeah yep. front yeah right yeah they yeah. Did, they didn't and, and you could tell you could tell but I kind of I kind of like it, it feels old school to me and even though I know it's blue screen like they obviously didn't have Harrison Ford jumping in front of a derailing train so you know that but it it, it looks dated but for some reason I kind of liked it I don't know yeah I didn't I didn't really uh for being a thirty year old or twenty nine year old shot I didn't really. It wasn't as like glaring to me as watching some of the Phase Three Marvel stuff, with with I and I agree, and it was like a smart choice to do it at night because that helps you blend in the uh, positioning of you know uh, superimposing you know the person there. If it was in daytime, maybe you see a darker circle around his body or you know whatever. So, I mean, they they made they made the right choices in terms of how they did the shot, and it's a very memorable like. I, I didn't do the rewatch of the trailer on this, but I, I, I swear that that shot's in the trailer. Oh, yeah, like for, sure. The, for sure. For sure. Big it, trailer moment, yeah. Well, because you mentioned it, and I, I kind of came to the same conclusion. The movie strove to be grounded, and then it was punctuated with these ridiculous set pieces that made people want to see it, like the train crash and the dive off the dam, and then the, the big helicopter chase at the end, which apparently they shortened quite a bit. Uh, that was supposed to be a lot longer than it was. Uh, but uh, it was you kind of had to suspend disbelief for a few of those things because it is a movie. But generally speaking, that that seemed to be kind of the strategy they were trying to go with, was trying to make this grounded, kind of tautly paced cat and mouse movie. It was what what two? I think it was two hours eleven minutes. Well, yeah. uh, one thing I thought was really funny that I read was that apparently the final cut that Andrew Davis turned tur turned into the studio. He said. The studio was actually happy with it. They said, don't change anything. It's perfect. And then he ended up making like 1,600 more additional edits to cut it down to what we know it as <laughs> now. Uh, part of that was they excised some uh, love stories. Like they were going to do... Uh... The reason Julianne Moore is billed fourth in the credits underneath Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones, and Sella Ward, who played Helen Kimball, was there was supposed to be a love story between them, even though she kind of snitched about at the hospital, which I think is kind of bizarre. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But then they decided that that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because it kind of takes away from the punch of him, you know, being in love with his wife and wanting to avenge her death and, you know, not really right. being over all that. So I, which I think is a good choice. I don't, I don't really know. I agree. I, 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 I feel, well, I was just going to say, uh, I feel like my, were you telling me that? Cause I didn't know this. I feel like if they did that, it would make me think especially watching the movie today, say for example, with so many twists and stuff at the end of movies that they're like, like Hollywood's like twist happy these days. Yeah. They do twists that twist twists and stuff. 
Uh, I blame M. Night Shyamalan for that. But um, <laughs> a twist. Uh, ooh, a twist. Um, was that Robot Chicken? <laughs> yeah. That's so good. Um, but I feel like that might make me think like, oh, they're actually going to reveal at the end that he did kill his wife. And like, you know, because like, why is he all of a sudden romancing this, you know, other person while he's trying to exonerate himself? Like that would take away from uh, sort of the belief of, of him being this like innocent, faithful, you know, guy because he, he's still grieving, clearly grieving his wife. And like that, that, that would just... That would upend the whole movie for me. And, I, I, and it, I, would, I, it would, it would, it would completely terrible. derail the pacing. I think if you yes. know, because yeah. it it's it does a good job of moving from his perspective to the marshal's perspective in their offices, and then you know they have they're they're hunting him down. He's tra- he has his own parallel manhunt going on where he's trying to figure out what the hell is going on right. because he knows he didn't kill his yeah. wife. Um, right. It does. It, one of the cons, I would say, I I, I don't. I don't know. It just kind of presented organically rather than wait for a certain point. But I had, I kind of a hard time believing that a doctor with financial resources would get railroaded like this. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we didn't really cover uh, the movie was based on a TV show from the sixties, uh, yeah. which was the plots very different. Then uh, there's, there's a few differences, but uh, namely that uh, the one armed man isn't connected to him at all it was just some burglar and he has to find him but he has help mm-hmm. um but the as far as uh you know it goes with uh, the television show it was supposedly a lot of people think it was based off of a real murder case that happened dr sam shepherd it actually was some somewhere in the area where i live in the cleveland area it happened in the 50s this doctor was accused of killing his wife and he went to prison for 10 years and then he was exon- exonerated uh later on but people there was always uh doubt about if he had really done it or not and how much the press coverage contributed to just tainting the jury pool and all this stuff the creators of the television show claim that that had no influence on on the creation of the tv show but uh Hmm. yeah that was supposedly kind of one of the because i i was talking uh to a fan of the show and the guy who keeps my uh, spine in line, my chiropractor, and he was saying that that was ba- he he was convinced that that was real. Like he was like, yeah, it was based on the Sam Shepard case. And then he actually told me an interesting thing about how the, he was an osteopath, and when he got out of prison, he was practicing for a while, but he actually killed a few people doing surgery because he was a, a huge alcoholic by then. So that's. Uh, and, he, and interestingly enough, he also went out on the road and was doing wrestling shows. I'm reading this now. Uh, yeah. He invented the mandible claw. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, man. It, it, just think about that. Like, the, you know, people talk now about media spectacles and the things that... In, back in the 60s, there was a, a doctor who was in a high-profile murder case, did almost a decade in prison, gets released on a retrial... And then goes out on the road is doing wrestling shows. And he's this huge draw because people want to come like just gawk at him. <laughs> wow, I just, I mean, like for people who don't know that that's man that was mankind's finishing move with the where he would throw the sock on his hand and just jam his fingers down someone's gullet. But, um, I I mean that's crazy that 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 that's crazy to think and and who knows you know whether it's based or not but, I mean. I never saw the series. I don't know if you could even stream it anywhere. I don't know that I'm even that interested because I'm not 
I feel like movie shows from the '60s are probably hard to watch today. Yeah, it's it's but. it's like one of those things where you want to appreciate. Like if you like movies and television, it even if you're a bit you, you're like you or me or some of our listeners, well, probably most of our listeners who like movies and television enough to listen to a podcast about them, at, along with their own consumption. It's it it's like it it gets more and more difficult to connect to those things that are shot further and further from when you lived. Like I, I like I tried to watch um, what was it? Rope, that Hitchcock movie, and it was shot in like 1929 or something, and it was just or 1939. I'm not sure, but it was like an old, old movie. It was in black and white, and just the way, even just the way people talk, like all the actors use that that kind of transatlantic accent, and they all kind of sounded the same because that's what you had to do to be in the movies back then, and just the mm-hmm. way they talk, and you just can't. You, it's really difficult to relate to it. Right, I agree. It, you can still appreciate completely. it, and I'm, I've talked about it before with the with the Connery Bond movies. Like the the action scenes are are just kind of hard to deal with in those because the effects aren't as good, the choreography wasn't as good. Um, I don't know, maybe the uh, some of the, the stuntmen were not as well trained back then in, in terms of like hand to hand combat. I don't really know, but. I just think that it gets a little more difficult to... I, the only thing I knew about the Fugitive TV show was that, that John Larroquette made a joke about it in the movie Madhouse. He was talking about how he he got a package of drugs. Madhouse. And he's like, and, and I'm David Jansen. And it was one of those references that I had no idea what it was until I was way older. <laughs> it was, it was kind of like in The Mask. You mentioned like the, the oddball references he makes in The Mask. I mm-hmm. He makes that one where... He does that one where he lights a cigar and he says... You're good. You're good, kid. Real good. But as long as, long as I'm around, you always be second best. See, I never knew what that was until two years ago. I was randomly watching the Steve McQueen movie called The Cincinnati Kid, where he plays a gambler, and that that quotes from that. It's like they put that movie, they put that quote in a movie that was like designed for ten year olds. It's like how would <laughs> I guess that was for the parents because that's the the balancing act you do with a kids movie. You got to put stuff in for the parents to keep them entertained. Or it could have been something that went unmentioned and he just did it because he likes it. And it's just like, he's like, if people get it, they get it. Otherwise, I, I, it's a goofy thing I'm doing in this movie, you know? Um, but was it Matt? Was that like Kirstie Alley? Yeah, Kirstie what? Alley and John Larroquette. That was... Uh... God, I, I, I'm sure I saw it when I was a kid and thought it was so funny. I bet it's the giant, biggest giant piece of shit movie uh, ever made. I, that was a very popular movie in, in our house. And I haven't seen it probably in 20 years. I can't. Yeah, it probably I, sucks ass. <laughs> yeah, re, that would probably be a, a brutal like revisit. I like you know how like people like well our podcast is basically based on this like sort of like the nostalgia and and that sort of stuff that we loved growing up. But I, I like the idea of of sort of shattering the rose tinted glasses of the past sometimes and being like, no, that thing I liked when I was a kid, that thing sucks ass. <laughs> And there's, dude, the list of movies that could do that is probably twice as long, or th- like it's probably multiples longer than the one we have for you know good movies that we want to talk about. Yeah, like your schlong. <laughs> okay, all right, all right, got that out of the way. Uh, listen, but the fugitive is not one of them, and it is not. Um, I I don't know, like, do you do you have a favorite scene in the movie? Um. When I was a kid, I remember I always thought that I just lo- I really liked the scene in City Hall where he goes to see the guy uh, Clive Driscoll. He's one of his candidates for the one-armed man in prison. Sees him immediately, realizes he's the wrong race, 
and just tries to tries to duck out because he knows what a risk he's taking. But for whatever right. reason, when I was a kid, it was just, I really enjoyed how he's running. By the way, Harrison Ford running in this movie was brutal, but there was kind of a reason for it. <laughs> he so when he was filming the scenes in North Carolina following the train wreck, uh, he injured some of the ligaments in his leg when he was running around, and. Mm-hmm. He decided that it would be better for the movie if he just had a limp the whole time. So he wait, He delayed having surgery until after the movie was over. So when you, when you see him running around, it looks kind of a little fucked up. It's because he was actually injured. He was just working through it because he thought it'd be better for the film. I mean, that's that's one of the things about Harrison Ford that maybe kind of goes unappreciated is the, you know, we mentioned kind of the workman's mentality. Like he... He did that. It was kind of an actory thing, but it, it's kind of practical too, where he followed doctors around, and um, you know, he talked to doctors and like actually uh, one of the one of them that they interviewed, the one of the surgeons that they talked with to kind of draw characterization from. That was kind of the inspiration for the decoration of his apartment, like some of the mm-hmm. art and furniture and stuff like that. So that's part of what Harrison Ford brought to the movie, along with, as I mentioned before, deciding to set it in Chicago among other things. But anyway, I, I digress from your question. I don't know. For some reason, I thought it was really cool when when Tommy Lee Jones was shooting at him. And it was like, it it kind of changed the whole dynamic because you realize it was like, oh, he would shoot him yeah, if, to stop him. It was just that the, right. the the glass was bulletproof and the shots were like right on, like 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 three center mass and then two at his head. And then he's kind of right. he's kind of looking at him like he can't fucking believe that this glass is protecting him from this. Right, and, it, and he his just his foot is is like st- sticking through. Yeah, and it's, yeah. then that kind of raises the question: Why did he just shoot him in the foot? But I don't know. But that definitely would have slowed <laughs> him down a little bit. But I don't know for whatever reason that scene always sticks in my head. I always really enjoyed that one. Uh, I mean, that's a great scene without question. Yeah. What about um, you? I you know it's tough. Um, there's a there's a lot of really great ones. Um, I kind of like the one where he's in the uh hospital and he's like helping he help he ends up helping out the kid oh yeah yeah um and that's how what tips off what's her name like that something strange is going on because why is a janitor like looking at a chart an x-ray chart mm. um <laughs> and then she pulls the classic like stay don't go anywhere stay right there it's, oh okay lady <laughs> you got it <laughs> you got it yeah um but yeah it's something about that scene i really liked because it just shows the good nature of him and that he is uh, a good person and wants to help people and he winds up saving that kid's life by giving a proper diagnosis um because i don't know if it was like he had a crushed rib cage or, or his lungs were collapsed or something like that but anyway <clears throat> and and that's that's another great part of this movie is <clears throat> he does leave intentional breadcrumbs for the U.S. Marshals um, to pick up on his innocence, but also there's um, genuine breadcrumbs he leaves just by being who he is, and that's one of those moments there. Um, him going back to Chicago to look for this one-armed man that they, you know, obviously they're going to be like, you know, why would he be doing this if he was guilty? He should be like trying to head to Mexico right now, not going to Chicago, back to Chicago. So. You know, I and there's a bunch of examples uh, throughout the movie. You know, he leaves the phone on so that they can trace it to the guy who actually killed his wife's house. 
Um, so that's an intentional one. But, you know, there, there's a mixture of both uh, intentional and unintentional breadcrumbs that he leaves to, to help Gerard realize that, you know, this guy maybe didn't kill his wife. And I like that they did a mixture of that because it allows him to show it allows us as the audience to get to know him um, because obviously this story picks up after the most horrific biggest moment of his life you know like most movies the the trial or whatever and and the conviction and stuff is the end of the movie you know we we see like this whole thing leading up to a person getting murdered and then it you know it it, it the person gets you know uh, sentenced and, and and thrown away whereas this movie we kick off with that and then we have to get to know this guy after the fact and i like how they presented that so i don't know if that was something they developed as they were going or it just sort of happened organically or if it was intentional from the get-go like we need our audience to believe this guy in order for this movie to work uh harrison ford does that alone because everyone loves harrison ford as, as a leading hero but uh, I think that was a, a smart choice to do both in, uh, intentional and unintentional breadcrumbs and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, the, the movie uh, is uh, is refreshingly free of nuance. It's They don't even show... Because I guess in the original show, I'm not going to mention it too many more times, but I guess in the original show, it was they had a history of... Like, they, they had like kind of a combative relationship, so that kind of worked against him. As opposed to this movie where it was like, he's obviously really in love with his wife and they have this great relationship. And even when he comes home, it's like she put rose petals out and all that stuff. And then he comes home to discover, you know, something grisly. But that was like one of the one of the few things that I had a quibble with was just they couldn't put together a better timeline. But again, they just made the cops so... And I'm sure there are cop. Not every cop is like this, but there are there are police officers who are just concerned with just moving things along. Like I like the whole thing where they were interviewing the cops, and at the end, not near, not at the end, but near the end, when the U.S. Marshals are interviewing the cops, and they're like, "Well, what was his motive?" It's like, "Well, well, his wife was rich," and he's like, "Well, he's a doctor. He's already rich." He's like, "Yeah, but she was more rich." And of course, that was fucking worse. That piece of shit. God, I hate that guy. Just fucking what an un- incredibly unlikable human being. And I guess he was really a detective in Chicago. Either him or one of the other detectives were real were really cops. And somehow they got tied in with Andrew Davis. And they wanted to do movies, and they done did several of them together. But. <laughs> It was like every time I saw that guy for whatever, I was like, oh, this fucking guy. And then I was because, you know, know, sometimes they put actors in things and it's like, why would you cast them in that? Like, because they're they're just it's like when you cast somebody as um, I'm trying to think of an actor who does this, but it's like you see that person. It's like, oh, that guy can't be on the level because they cast that person. It's like what, uh, yeah, like uh, how Marco Rodriguez used to be, or like Tony De La Pena, like these Hispanic character actors that you would just cast them as like these just duplicitous guys in things. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, that's that might be a little too obscure, even for even for you, Johnny. But <laughs> it, it is. But I'm, I'm hanging on. Well, but, I'm we'll, hanging on tight. Well, we will move swiftly onward. But yeah, the uh, yeah we didn't talk. We, we you said you're not a big Tommy Lee Jones fan. I um. I, I mean, ah, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, I I mean, I liked him in this movie, but uh, I thought it was funny that he said that you know th- this is going to get nominated for any awards, and it got nominated for seven Oscars, and he won the only one. Right. Uh, yeah. 
but I, he I feel like this is definitely the role for him for his personality his way of uh, speaking and, and that sort of thing I think it he felt like he was Sam Gerard um, in this and in other movies I, I don't necessarily uh, feel that way about Tommy Lee Jones especially uh, Volcano um, <laughs> But, uh, which that, that's that's a movie I'll forever have only seen once and never again, dude. What is um, what is it about Hollywood and when they have the studios like it's like something comes through the grapevine. Like Dante's Peak came out like two months before that, and that right. didn't do well at the box office either. I don't think, but it was like right. I don't remember yeah. what studios were involved, but it was like let's just say for example, the sake of examples, like Warner Brothers and Paramount, and it's like oh shit, Warner Brothers is doing a volcano movie. We have to do one too. It's like. Why? And then they both suck. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Deep, deep impact in Armageddon. Yeah. Same, same year. Yeah. That, that shit happens a lot. Um, and I'm not sure why. I, you know, usually it's like you get the big movie and then you get a 500 shitty ones after, like like Jaws, like Deep Blue Sea, you know, any, or Megalodon or The Meg, you know, any <laughs> shit, sharks or what's that movie that fucking terror Sharknado. Sharknado. I think they made like six to, of those. Straight to the USA Network with that blonde prick from 90210. <laughs> you're, Ian Zering. My name's not Ian. It's Ian. No, it's not. Your name's Asshole. That's what your name is. He He's probably the nicest guy ever, but fuck that guy. Um, <laughs> yeah, he, he got to outlive Luke Perry. Just, just proof there's no fucking justice anywhere. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> fucking Christ. Um... um so, but, but, you know, this movie does have a lot of, like, interesting cameos. Like, you know, Jane Lynch is in this movie. And, yeah. You know, she, that woman was born the age of 48, apparently. Yeah. Because it, it, don't you feel like she, 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 like, she never looked, she always looked like she was, like, a mom age sort of thing. Like, a, like an older mom age. And, like, even to this day, like, I feel like, she, like you watch, like, 40-year-old virgin. You're like, that's 12 years after the fugitive. Looks exactly the same. Yeah. Well, you put on something today. Jane Lynch is in it. She looks exactly the same. It's kind of good a, for her. It's kind of a blessing and a curse to never really look young. I I, I think I kind of have that going on. Like I I never really looked young. Like people never really thought. I people always thought I was older. And now it's like yeah. now I guy who had to go buy all the beer. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not, <laughs> not to that level. But it was like it was like once I was in my twenties, people thought I was way older than I was. And, yeah, like yeah, well, like uh, Steve Martin, like with his like white hair when he was younger, and I, I know what that's like, of course, you know, having gray hair when I was in my twenties. But um, no, yeah, that's a good point. But <clears throat> but the, yeah, so your boy Joey Pants obviously Joey has a Pants. good role in this one. Did did you um, did you stumble across the little piece of research for for him for this that I thought was pretty funny? Oh no! So at the end of the movie, uh, Joe Joey Pants. Joe Pantoliano, who plays Cosmo Renfro, is kind of like the unofficial number two. Uh, yeah. He gets... Comic relief, sort of. Yeah. He gets hit in the face with a fucking I-beam when they're in the laundry of the Chicago Hilton. And his character was supposed to die. And he... Lo- which, you know, would have made a lot more sense. Because I, I even remember when I was watching this, I was like, man, how the how did he survive getting hit, taking an I-beam to the face? And... It turns out that he lobbied behind the scenes because he thought there'd be a sequel, and he he wanted to st- <laughs> stay alive. So like he he 
not only lobbied to the producers and the director and stuff, but like when he when he was in the uh, gurney and they're wheeling him out, he knew they were gonna have a scene of him in a gurney. He was like making little noises and stuff, and like so they they, they couldn't kill him off. Which I, and then he did reappear oh, wow. in U.S. Marshals as you yeah, which you I didn't know if that was gonna come up or not, but uh, <clears throat> it's a, that that's an uh, just briefly on U.S. Marshals. It's an interesting movie because it was pretty good for a sequel, um, and they didn't call it the fugitive 2 which i actually think helped it um it was almost like a spin-off for gerard and company yeah and i and and you know it was pre renaissance robert downey jr which was also it's also kind of interesting to to go back and revisit yeah. him in that era where he was like you know still on drugs and, and having trouble with the law and stuff like that and his career was teetering and he put you know he was still really good in that movie of course he winds up being the bad guy but um yeah i thought you know I don't, we're not going to spend too much time on U.S. Marshals, but solid sequel in my opinion. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. The only problem I had with U.S. Marshals in general is kind of an overarching thing was it was kind of the same concept, but with a different guy. It was, I think it would have been a lot more interesting just to see him like go after a really kind of highly qualified or highly competent fugitive who was actually guilty as opposed to having mm. this whole big conspiracy with the the government and all this other stuff by the way that movie is really interesting to watch because people generally especially if you've only been watching movies or for the past 20 years or something it's hard to think of robert downey jr as being unlikable and he is he is not likable in that movie which it's, it's no. not he doesn't do a yeah. bad job Maybe that's what the part kind of called for he was like this cocky uh <laughs> duplicitous government agent like he was just a shady yep. guy and uh yeah he did the cool thing where he uh picked handcuffs with a with eyeglasses though that was cool but was uh, cool. anyway back to the back to the fugitive uh the, kind of the dichotomy yeah the, kind of the dichotomy between the two parts you know you have harrison ford you have, uh, you have the dr richard kimball part and then you have the samuel gerard part and they're they're both kind of like I, they're kind of like i don't want to this is kind of an overused thing but it's they're, they're almost like polar like flip sides of the same coin like they're both driven determined intelligent people it's just mm -hmm. that um Samuel Gerard is driven more by his desire to just just win and capture people and things. They kind of do that with other law enforcement characters. Like they tried to do it with the Rock's character in the Fast and the Furious movies, which I know you love, and you know that's totally an apt comparison for you, right? But it was yeah, like I have a I have a tattoo of an entire exhaust system <laughs> on my tricep. So on for for a Saturn SL two, <laughs> might I add. No, I fucking don't. Those movies suck ass. <laughs> They're just going to The Iron Zeering should have been in the Fast and the Furious movies as the lead. It should have been him, not Paul Walker. <laughs> fucking Vin Diesel. Ugh, the first movie is them stealing DVD players, and now they're like jumping the, the landing cars on helicopters. I mean, the whole thing. Fuck got, that franchise. It's gotten so out of hand. It, it yeah. really did. Um, they should literally merge that franchise with Sharknado. It's <laughs> called fucking Fastnado, whatever the fuck. It's fucking piece of shit movies. Oh man, <laughs> Johnny's throwing heat, throwing heat tonight. <laughs> I am Groot. <laughs> yes, you are. You are a fucking CGI tree, you idiot. Ooh, all right. Well, anyway, never. Yeah. So, so re real quick. Yeah. Uh, 
our boy Neil Flynn, and we have to talk about this. Yeah, I know. I want to go back to. I do want to go back to Gerard and 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 Kimball, but real quick, you know, I know you watch Scrubs because you like Doctor Cox. Oh yeah, um, John C. McGinley, your boy. Uh, but Neil Flynn as the the transit cop, his cameo, he yells. That's what I did at the beginning, Kimball. <laughs> um, and they they reference that in Scrubs where the janitor is actually also an actor and the janitor from scrubs is the actor in yeah the Fugitive. that's one of that's so, one of the great meta bits of all time it, it like, was it was really good so uh and you know we know him also for for being one of the the construction guys from major league of course which we've done uh so this is our second neil flynn movie and only our first harrison ford movie so <laughs> and we're really on point here at just like the movies. and we've got zero kurt russell movies so Put what that, the put f- that in your pipe and what smoke a- it oh my god i'm gonna have to change my pick now i have a non-kurt russell movie as my next pick oh okay crap um but we're not there yet we yeah. have a lot of fugitive to talk and back to the juxtaposition gerard kimball i don't know like we don't really know who sam gerard is off the clock they don't like and maybe for good reason, like they don't give us the, you know, the alcoholic law enforcement guy whose wife left him, thankfully, because every that's done, I think, way too much. Um, but we don't really get anything on him, right? Does he talk about a wife? No, or I mean, I'm not, I'm not that great with subtext in films, honestly. Neither and, am I. And I, I usually gloss over it. Yeah. And I think that in this movie, it was just that. Le- the the whole thing with his character development was it, you it, it just seemed to be his whole identity was his work and that's yeah and you know that's another overused trope but I mean there are people like that in real life and it's it's pretty popular to portray highly competent people at the top of their field in films or television shows that way and it kind of makes sense I mean if if you're the if you're like one of the best manhunters in the country you probably don't spend your time thinking about much else or doing much else. So, I mean, that's pretty much all the character development I needed. It just seemed like he was, like, what kind of life would that guy have if he's going, if he's yeah. traipsing around the country? Like, like he's trying to run down this doctor who's always made a couple steps ahead of him, but then in the interim, they do a second manhunt where they get that Copeland guy. And then, right. so, I mean, that's, that's a lot going on there. Right. Oh, that, that, that was another one of those um, unintentional breadcrumbs is when that guy who... Kimball helps out, out of the train like lets them know that he's you know he saved him and that they'd be like they were like why would a guy why would a murderer why would a guy kill his own wife save some innocent save some stranger you know um so that that you made me think of that moment too mm-hmm. but the, the whole Sam Gerard thing is interesting because it is a great performance and I feel like Tommy Lee Jones is the right guy for that role even though I'm not a big fan of his but man, when I was digging into the, you know, what could have been's and you did bring up, you know, Mel Gibson, we joke about this a lot on the podcast, but uh, you're right. You know, Mel Gibson was up for potentially both roles, but he was like white hot at the time, even to the point where he could do like the, you know, the man without a face and, and people still liked it. So, um, <laughs> uh, but seeing Gene Hackman's name, I was like, oh, oh, man, you caught that. that That's was, good. That was that would have been so sweet. I you know I love Gene Hackman, man. So I that, that I think that and it, but it makes me wonder like he likes uh, you know nuance and 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 character uh, development and arcs and stuff. Like I wonder if he would have almost like because of his stature as an actor would have pushed them to give him a bit more of a of a character. 
um, which obviously wasn't needed if Tommy Lee Jones won an Oscar for what they gave us. But you got to wonder, like you, you think of Gene Hackman and, and like, you know, people, some people think of him as Lex Luthor. Sure. He was great at that, but you know, he, he's in a lot of, you know, great old movies. And like, I think of like the conversation and stuff like that, where French you know, connection. Really, yeah. He really little has Bill and like, unforgiven. Right. He, he has a lot of, oh, yeah, of course. And he has a lot of, uh, more of a psychological um, deep dive uh, for his characters in a lot of those movies. So, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta wonder about that, but what, what, what's your, what's your quick take on, on, on that? If, you know, for other people who are up for the role, um, is this like a, no, this is Tommy Lee Jones and that's it for me. Or do you sometimes like think of the, Oh, I wonder if Gene Hackman played Gerard. The only name I saw that was seriously considered for the Gerard part, like Gene Hackman (laughs) turned it down. I don't know what he turned it down to do or for any, what reason I I didn't come across that, but was it around unforgiven, uh, uh, unforgiven? No, I think unforgiven came out the year before this. Oh, year before. Okay. So, uh, but I think, I don't know. I, I think I, I am I am really interested in your in your because the the writing wasn't so strong like the script was constantly being reworked like there's there's heavy improv some of the scenes um like what the one scene where um they I mentioned the Copeland raid where the other guy the big the the giant African American gentleman gets hunted down in in that flop yep. house with his old lady right and uh yep. After that, like that whole scene where he's talking to Newman, the kind of new guy on his team, like apparently that was all improv. Like the the Harrison Ford scene where he's being interrogated from the cops, apparently they thought it'd be better not to tell him what questions were coming, so he was just kind of freeform reacting to what the questions were in the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think if Gene Hackman were involved, I think I, like Tommy Lee Jones did a lot of that work where they, he was adding his input into seeds because they needed more support or they, he thought they needed to be changed. And I, I think it maybe would have been, a, there would have been this psychological development that maybe would have, maybe it would have enriched the character or maybe would have slowed the movie down. I don't really know. Gene Hackman's like, make my guy a war veteran. I'll take care of the rest. <laughs> Yeah, something like that. I don't know. I, I don't. There were no other names that I, I like when I was when I was you know researching for this that I thought would do. You know, Tommy Lee Jones was what obviously the best guy for the job. But it is interesting yep. to think of I, the only the only ha- pro, uh, issue I would have with Gene Hackman is his age. You know, like doing the. I think Tommy Lee Jones had, even though, as uh, you know, one of our listeners pointed out, that Tommy Lee Jones was already looking like five miles of bad road by the time this movie came out, and that was almost thirty years ago. Yeah. He was only, you know, and I, 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 my reply was, you know, at the accelerated rate I'm aging, I'm, I'm gonna refrain from judgment on that. But uh, <laughs> the, but he, he definitely had the physical aspects down like the running and the you know handling the firearms and stuff like that and yes. I, I don't know if gene hackman would have been quite as up for it as Tommy lee jones would have been because i think Tommy lee jones was i i think uh i think cal turk said he was only like uh 46 when they filmed this yeah i don't know right yeah, there was one other alternate thing i didn't that's a fair point yeah i that's that's the only thing that I think would would have really kind of made the difference, especially think about that scene where he's like slipping, he slips down the, uh, the drain, but I don't know the access tunnel for the dam and things yeah. like that, and he's like like uh, rooting around looking for the gun. 
I don't know if that would really worked or running through City Hall. Like I said, the one what a very memorable scene for me. I don't know if that really would have worked as much. Um, but one of the one of the alternate uh, castings I didn't get out was at one point they were talking to Walter Hill about directing it, a Forty Eight Hours fame, and that would have reteamed him with Nick Nolte as Richard Kimball. Oh and God! It just would have been like. <laughs> It'd be like, oh, oh RDU90, god damn it, the goddamn professor. That's a good note. God damn it. Uh, cheers to Patton Oswald for that. Um, that's actually my impression of Patton Oswald doing an impression of Nick Nolte. So, uh, oh, about that? <laughs> I saw Patton Oswald. He had a uh, mechanical uh, arm. God damn it. <laughs> I saw Patton Oswald that uh, I went to the world premiere of uh, The Last Jedi and I saw Patton Oswald there. Oh wow, interesting. He was a uh, a small man. <laughs> there was that whole thing with his wife too. That that uh, that intrigue with his he, one wife who died, and they thought he killed his wife. Well, they there. I don't know. I don't think he did. But there's talk. This this became just really really on point topical for the for this podcast. <laughs> no, like like his wife. <laughs> he had this wife. I can't remember her name. Is Michelle something? And she had a true crime podcast. And apparently yeah. she died under pretty suspicious circumstances. And then he he moved on a little too quickly after she, like oh, within like three did, months. Did he blame? I think within three months he had like a new live in girlfriend or something. Oh, did, did, did he uh, did he blame it on the drummer for Def Leppard? <laughs> I don't think so. You know, because of the one arm. <laughs> oh, I oh I get it. It's very clever. Oh, all right. <laughs> but wow, this is. We are having a hard time staying on topic, and this is a good. Okay, the funny thing is, it is so not in the vein of this movie because the movie is like very like like you mentioned. There's there's plot twists and things like that, but um, generally speaking, I mean, it's just it's a pretty straightforward movie, and there's not a whole lot of create like there's no not a whole lot of nuance or anything. It really is, and and you talking about the the other convict who got away when they finally catch up to him that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when they shoot him and then Tom, uh, Gerard just goes shut up <laughs> she's screaming he just goes shut up yeah he's not even like mad oh. about it or anything he doesn't raise shut up <laughs> right right exactly and 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 she, and she does you know so I, I that was one of the better uh, uh, parts of the movie it um for him, for Gerard, I like I like that scene a lot. But there's there's so many iconic scenes like the I didn't kill my wife, I don't care, and the the leap of faith. Um, that that's that was marketed heavily for this movie. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it's it's like I think what's so cool about the fugitive, you know, because it does have so many you know iconic scenes. You know him, you know changing his appearance. I find that stuff interesting. Like you know he shaved, he gets the hair, dyes his hair, takes the photos, does the new ID, takes the food from the the, the guy who's like a vegetable, um, and you know that that whole funny bit where the the nurse walks in, and she goes, "Oh, you actually had an appetite today," and he's back there licking his fingers with the eggs, but. You know, so many great scenes and the almost got him and you're on the edge of your seat and stuff like that. But I think what's really so cool about The Fugitive is it's it's not really one genre because it is, you know, like a crime. It is action. Uh, it, it's, you know, mystery. 
it's because you, you, they are unraveling. He's unraveling this mystery with us. We're going on the ride with him, like trying to find it. Like, because we didn't know the French doctor he was friends with was wound up being the bad guy. We just thought he was a guy trying to help him out who we knew, who we worked with. You know, he let, here, take some money, Richard. You know, it's good to see you and stuff like that. We're just like, oh, that's, what a nice guy. What a nice guy. And then he turns out being the whole the whole shebang. Well, that is, that's big, one of the limitations. The you, you do bring up a good point that, about kind of the blending of genres, but there is a mystery component to this because he has to figure out who's behind this conspiracy. Right. And right. I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I'm sure there are people that are going to disagree with me. Maybe you, you included. I, I think in general the mystery genre is such a letdown. It's always because, because the when you're doing when you're c composing a work of fiction, whether it's a novel or a, a movie or a television show, you know you have to. There's certain things you have to abide by. One of them being the law of economy of characters, right? So you see a character pop up, and it's like, well. And them being, it always has to be somebody close. When it's a conspiracy like this, it's like it's somebody that has to be close to you. They have to have access. They have to know things. To, That's true. To kind of like like in this movie, in this case, Doctor Nichols, played by uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Euron Crave, I think. He's a mm -hmm. he's a Dutch gentleman, freaky mm. deaky Dutch, maybe mm. maybe Belgian. I'm not sure. I can't remember. He's uh, but he's definitely a European actor from the accent and everything. He actually was a late. Uh, replacement. They had to start reshooting the scenes for the original actor because he uh, had cancer and he passed away, which is kind of unfortunate. But uh, Oof. yeah, um, but uh, yeah, Oof. that was that. His whole character was you're exactly right. Like that was one of the, that was another thing on the rewatch that was a big negative for me. It was like, why didn't this guy just dime out his friend to the police? He could have done that at yeah. any point. But instead, he like right. he gave him access to the tissue samples at the hospital and gave him money and like didn't tell the cops that he like that he knew where he was going. I don't know. Like it's hard to explain. The only thing I can think of for why he would do that is because he wanted to see what he knew. But I, uh, I, I don't even know be. why you would give him the chance to figure that out. Like you just make an anonymous phone call from a payphone, which they still had back then. And is it? Is it like? choppy writing for the sake of throwing the audience off the scent like is it worth that trade-off for them you know what i'm saying well i don't know now that i'm now that i'm talking it out it's you know they, to be fair to the like it's not like kibble really get, it's not like he hung out with him it was kind of like he hit no. him he hit him completely by surprise and then wouldn't spend any more time with him so it's like i guess maybe if he knew where he was or where he was mm -hmm. going but like, yeah. well, he did know where he was going at one point because he gave him access to the samples at the hospital. He's like, can you call yeah. Bones? And he's like, yeah. And then, so he knew he was going to be going there at some point. And and finding out some some serious stuff. Yeah. I, so I don't know if that's just that's one thing in a in what I think is a pretty great movie that's kind of a gap now that I'm older and mm. have a little more jaded try to apply mm. more critical faculties to think it's like if that guy was you know that guy was neck deep in the whole thing he's basically behind it all why wouldn't he at some point try to figure out a way to set Kimball up it's to get him yeah. off his back because like why right. would he want any of that stuff coming to light yeah that's fair I don't know fair that was, just, that was like one thing that jumped out of me one of the negative things that and him surviving that jump off a dam I think from that height, hitting water would be like hitting a brick wall. Because they did the... Uh, have you ever seen that documentary about the people who jump off the Golden Gate Bridge? 
that survive. Ooh. I can't remember the no. name of it, but they did they did it. I think it's just called The Bridge. It might be called. Uh not to be confused with the show on FX for two seasons that starred Diane Kruger. Uh but <laughs> Oh, of course not. No. Yeah. Uh, I, but think, I think our whole audience was thinking that's what you were going towards. <laughs> but the the survivors talked about talk about that. They talk well one of the things they say is as soon as they jump, they wish they hadn't. They, almost all of them say that, which, you know, so you know, choose life. But they also say that <laughs> at that height, hitting the water, it's like that you break bones because it's like, it's like the dynamic surface tension of water. You know, you're jumping from 150, 200 feet up. You know, it's, it's almost like falling yeah. off a building and then surviving is just kind of blind luck at that point, especially if you, you know, factor in the drowning thing. But the, the, yeah. so those are my two big criticisms with the fugitive uh, rewatching it all these years later. But I mean, they, you know, you balance that with the, you know, it's a pretty smart, tautly paced chase movie. You've got it manages to make these things interesting that wouldn't normally be interesting. Like it shouldn't have been captivating that he was looking at liver samples at the hospital, and uh, right. you know, or making a fake ID, you know, stuff like that. That stuff it <clears throat> seems kind of humdrum, but they made it kind of interesting. And fun to watch yeah yeah and i like the fact that he is obviously a very smart guy he's a uh, uh heart surgeon but you could see he was out of his element for for a lot of this stuff and, and just like trying to do the best he can to get through this and and, and all that so like him trying to you know take the photos and he's like like blinding himself with the flash and stuff like that like little, little things like that or or that 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 like one of the funnier scenes in the movie is when uh the guy stops him uh because his like flies down when he's he's positioning himself as a doctor at the hospital because he gets the white coat on and he has like a donut in his mouth and he's like hey doc have you seen the guy you know six blank got a beard blah blah he's like every time i look in the mirror pal i was like that's such a what i mean the stones you have to have to look at that cop and say that is brilliant like uh, so that was that's one of my favorite parts of the movie too and he goes oh doc and he points and he's like he zips up his his uh pants so he's like obviously distracted uh you know he forgot to zip up his pants and stuff like that but the fact that he looks at that cop and he says uh <laughs> to, to his own description that the cop's looking for he's looking at the guy <laughs> that he's looking for which is to your point about the chicago pd i guess but uh in the, how they're portrayed in the movie is him saying every time I look in the mirror, pal. That I mean, what a line! That might be the best line in the movie for me. I just so good, except for the beard, of course. Yeah, that was one of the things they did early on to try to figure out how to not make him have to wear a disguise. Was Harrison Ford grew out a beard, and apparently the studio wasn't happy with it because he his quote was something along the lines of, "Well, they paid for this face; they probably want people to see it." But then eventually, you know, he was going to shave it off as part of the, so he wouldn't have to come up with a disguise. It'd be, you know, harder to spot. Cause if, you know, if you for for us bearded folks, you're you're a little new to the community, but I mean I've had a beard for a long time. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's something that like if you have it for long enough, it's like people almost don't recognize you when you don't have it, or you just look like a totally uh, different agree. person. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I remember when uh, like Keanu Reeves has had a beard for like two decades now, and he he shaved it for the new Bill and Ted, and he, he looked terrible. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, and for Keanu Reeves to look bad without a beard, I mean, what chance do I have? So I maybe, <laughs> I may have to keep this thing on my fucking face, no matter how how white it gets. Yeah, I I shaved my beard uh, earlier in the year, uh, 
for my nephew because he wanted to see what I looked like without a beard. And uh, I was like, I couldn't wait for it to grow back. I'm like, Jesus Christ, am I really this fucking ugly? Like, I, I need to cover that third of my face again. It's fucking brutal. Uh, well, our audience has seen what you look like because I tweeted out a photo of us. Yeah, thanks for that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. I was like, fuck him. I'm not going to ask him. He's going to do it. Could, you could have put like a, you could have just photoshopped in like a little executioner's hood over my head or something. <laughs> I should have just posted a picture. Of, I should have photoshopped Frank Zappa's. Face yeah, Frank Zappa or Barry Gibb. Either one of those would have worked. Barry fucking Gibb. Nah, Barry Gibb is way too good looking to be mistaken for me. <laughs> fucking Barry Gibb. Uh, <laughs> you you're you're too, you're too harsh on yourself, buddy. Knock it off. I know it's part. It's, um, well, it's mostly shtick. It's like it is. It's, it's like shtick. it's like sixty three percent shtick. It's a fucking bit. <laughs> um, anyway, anyway, yes. yeah. So, um, I, I, it's funny that I keep thinking about these like these little moments and stuff like that that that, that I I just love and you know you got the whole uh, obviously this takes place in in March. <clears throat> you got the St. Patty's Day parade going on. They got the Green River in Chicago and. He takes a, he takes a little hat out of the trash and, and or he he wears the hat and throws it in the trash and sneaks out and that was one of my one of my favorite uh, him just slipping away is when he tries to blend into the parade and you see uh, Tommy Lee Jones like trying to jump to see if he could spot him in a mass crowd of uh, fifty thousand middle aged white men that was the, the that was the real St Patrick's Day parade too they just kind of yeah it's pretty that's cool they just yeah. kind of work themselves into it um, yeah. That, that's pretty that's pretty cool but there you know i'm trying to think of like the the big bulk scenes and how how close he gets to being caught and you know the, i think the one thing that felt out of place in the movie for me is like him, his like re- him renting the apartment or whatever and them bringing in that kid who had his own you know rap sheet and he he was you know sitting there eating a burrito or some shit in the police in the police uh or donut or whatever in the police station like ratting out richard kimball and i'm like this this just seems like this wasn't very necessary i don't know um but you know well i mean that was a good scene when he's you know he's renting that apartment and you could tell that i mean now it would be really i'm sure there's places you could rent that wouldn't ask a lot of questions it would take cash but those play that's a lot those places are going to be a lot fewer and further between now as opposed to in the early 90s in a big city like Chicago. So there's some feasibility there, but that was a great scene when uh, when the when the sirens, you know, the cops showed up and he thought they were there for him. Yes. And then yeah. and he's kind of like holding tight that he sees, though no, they're arresting the landlord's scumbag son with a skullet um, <laughs> and then apparently letting him off of whatever uh, drug charges because he had information about him and then yeah, I, fucking brian knobs from the nasty boys <laughs> and then later on you see him like he he obviously is smart enough to not stay there and then later on he's leaving a uh a men only hotel somewhere downtown like an sro uh, i don't know if you're familiar with those i've always been oddly fascinated with those they're like the, that's what your background is yeah it's <laughs> i was gonna use the chicago hilton but i was like nah let's go for this scene that was in the movie for five seconds where Harrison Ford's like leaving this flea bag single room occupancy hotel they're basically just like dormitories but in the real world it's like there's a bunch of there's a bunch of hotel rooms and there's a communal bathroom on one floor like spy uh 
in the Spider-Man movies. That's where Peter Parker lived. He lived in like an oh, SRO, gotcha. and you only see him in like in bigger cities. Like, I, and I think they're kind of becoming more antiquated. I don't even know if they have them in Cleveland or not. Well, that's life in the big city. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm glad you worked that in, even though you're not really the biggest RoboCop fan. That's good times. Nah. All right, yeah. but. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so we went from talking about you know the movie, and then we went to talking about living arrangement. It, I mean, it, I guess it maybe it's it's kind of a testament to the film where there's so many little moments and so many little like minutia you can get bogged down in. Like, but, well, let let me ask you this. Hmm. So, um, he when he goes to the conference to confront, um, what's his Nichols. Nichols? Yeah, Nichols. and he just walks into the room. I don't know that he was aware that there was a um, shoot to kill order at that point or not himself. I think at this point he doesn't care. But if you're in that room, like, do you think the, 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 the crowd reaction was realistic? Like a little stirring, a few people stand up, or do you think it would have been more like, get him, you know, tackle him. That guy killed his wife. That's the guy. I, like, do you think there would have been those, you know, the good guy with a gun thing, you know, like all these like, you know, Boy Scouts trying to be heroes sort of situation? I, I think the, I, I really hadn't given that scene a whole lot of thought, but I, I definitely think that when you, if something like that were to happen, like if I was at a conference or something and... Somebody came in and was just being like over the top disruptive. I think I would just kind of sit there and not really know what the hell was going on. And then it would just, you know, because it wasn't a very long scene. You know, it's not like he was like ranting for minutes on end. It was, he came right. in and no. said a couple things. Mm -hmm. And then he, and then, you know, the, the, uh, Dr. Nichols was trying to like make excuses for him and be like, oh, we, we're going to talk off stage. And I, I think, right. I think generally speaking, people are, I mean, I, I think, I'm, and I'm not excluding myself, I think people are stunned by that kind of stuff and they don't really know what to do. And they don't they don't really want to get involved. Yeah. I mean, if you're Dr. Nichols, I mean, that guy had to have been like pissing himself <laughs> at that point. You know? Because you know he figured it out and he's there in front of all these people, like a room full of like 500 big time uh, important people. And then you you get him off stage, but the spotlight followed them. So cheer the spotlight guy was on point that night. <laughs> that guy ate his vitamins that morning. He took his job seriously. He kept the spotlight on both of them, and he does that to like get your hand off me thing. Mm. When that happens, dude, you are fucked. When Harrison Ford gives you that shit, you're done. Yeah, you're I'll, finished. I'll, I'll tell you what. Another, you know, kind of we we both kind of touched on the 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 attempts at the movie to keep things realistic and kind of grounded it was i think th they did a good job with the fist fighting like what you know when they when they had the big yes. when they had the big conversation at the end because it was like yeah it was two grown men who were in pretty good physical condition like going to work on each other but they weren't like trained fighters they weren't it wasn't this oh it, you know in fact the action was a little sloppy sometimes the uh some of the punches were overly uh, telegraphed but they're not trained fighters, so it kind it kind of works as opposed to, and as much as I like the movie and the franchise, like I was rewatching The Dark Knight Rises earlier this week, and oh. um, yeah, a lot of problems with the fight scenes in those movies for for two guys who were supposed to be these elite mm -hmm. fighters, and I, I think part of that has to do with the fact that you know Batman's in like a forty or fifty pound rubber suit, and at least yeah, yeah, that's not gonna. 
you know, that's going to restrict your movement and, and stuff like that. But wait, what, it made me think about this movie where it was like, yeah, you know, Harrison Ford's like reaching back to fucking Iowa to punch Dr. Charles Nichols, but he's not, but it, but it kind of <laughs> makes sense. Cause it's like, yeah, they're doctors. They're not really fine. I agree. Like, if they had made him Indiana Jones, so to speak, and, and have him just knocking the shit out of all these guys, it would have been weird because it would have been like, this guy's a fucking surgeon. He's a nerd. Like, <laughs> like he should be hurting his hand when he's punching or, like, tucking his thumb inside his fist or not knowing how to, like, you know, hit a guy and stuff like that. And he did kind of get his ass kicked quite a bit. So uh, I, I think I, you're spot on. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I like how they handled that aspect of it. And, they uh they resisted the temptation of well we have harrison ford so let's have him do his harrison ford thing and just like punch the shit out of people with some deathly awesome sound effects mm. um so i it, it got it did get a little over the top when they're sort of like he's hanging them over that uh stairwell the fire escape thing and i was like all right we're getting we're getting close here how far is this gonna go you know but they they sort of reeled it back in and and um, it it did feel more you know grounded or real and and, and then like like a diehard ending or something you know like if, if they started going too far with it it would have been a a, a bit much because there are some movies you know that feel a certain way and then just like get at way out of hand at the end and you're just like <laughs> well, what just happened to this movie like this just got just absolutely nuts I can't think of one off the top of my head but you know there's there's dozens I've seen that are like that, uh, but this one they they kept it pretty solid, and I kind of like at the end where you know it's you know just the two of them in the car, and he, he, for the sake of you know not causing hysteria, they kept him cuffed, uh, and they walk him into the car, and then he undoes his handcuffs, and he sort of gives him that look, and he's like, I thought you didn't care, and he's like, I don't, don't tell anybody, <laughs> and I that thought that was a a pretty good ending there, and then he does the classic bang on the roof to like it's okay we can we can get going now like i if i was a cop or any sort of law enforcement guy i i that's what i want to do that move mm. i don't care about watch your head as i get you in the car i want to do the bang bang we're okay yeah go. or Let's from the go. outside it's like it's like take this asshole to jail yes <laughs> like, right yes exactly you take this piece of shit downtown and make a pop, pop. make a bunch of really distasteful like rape jokes and then then tap the top <laughs> of the roof Yeah, you just double. Yeah, you just double tap on the car, and you're like, "Don't drop the soap, pal." Yeah, I, like Mike. What the? <laughs> yeah, of course. fuck, man. Yeah, I heard they're serving cock meat sandwiches and B wing tonight. Enjoy. <laughs> this piece of shit out oh, here, well, mom. You know what's funny? That so the I don't know him from anything else, but the guy who plays Sykes, uh, the one our man uh, Andreas Katsoulis, yep, uh, Greek. I'm guessing. Um, he was only 45 in that movie. That's us in like five years, dude. That guy looked like 60 at least. He looked like he'd seen some shit. Yeah. 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 Here, here, yeah. here I go. Try to, I was trying to take the high road and be like, ah, I'm not going to crack on people for looking prematurely old because you know, I'm getting old and I'm getting old before my time that here I am just fucking <laughs> just taking the shot. That's how, it, that's how it goes, man. Yeah. That's how it goes. Um, so the movie itself and how it performed, um, we're looking at a budget of like forty million, 
And would it make like three fifty? Yeah, three three hundred sixty eight point nine million. I mean, that's big time, man. And I, I mean, Ford probably made like fifteen million or something like that. I, I think this was before the the twenty million mark mm-hmm. was hit. Um, but where would you stack this up on Harrison Ford movies for you? Oh, it's it's probably top three. I I I was thinking about. I thought you might ask me this because I'm not. I'm not as well versed with the Harrison Ford movies as uh, as you mm-hmm. are. I would say, like, if I had to go off the top of my head right now, I'm probably neglecting something because I mean, Her- this was kind of a high water mark for Harrison Ford. I think this was the last movie he was ever in that was nominated for Best Picture. And uh, oh wow, yeah. I mean, I mean, he did some movies that were pretty. For- like, I remember he's that movie Firewall in uh, the mid 2000s with like Paul Bettany which was kind of forgettable yeah. like nothing wrong with it very just forgettable not just just not a great film um, yep I'd have to say by, by top in no particular order would probably be this uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and uh, Clear and Present Danger really enjoy Clear Ooh. and Present Danger I was thinking about him as uh, that was his first uh, no that was his second uh, Jack Ryan movie and uh right i, I yeah, for some reason Patriot i really games. there's a lot i really enjoy about clear and present danger it's a I think it's a really good movie um, yeah i like patriot games because of sean bean oh that's cool that's cool i mean i like i like sean bean you know i like sean yeah bean. i liked him in goldeneye i thought he was great in that um yeah but game uh, of thrones i thought he was awesome yeah it's just patriot like i saw patriot games like years after i saw clear and present danger oh, okay. which was a sequel to it and i just didn't think it yeah. i just thought it was an inferior movie yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I mean, that the, that's probably the more popular take there. Um, for for me, it's it's easily in a, in a top five situation. Obviously, a lot of Star Wars in there for me, and I love Indiana Jones, so th- those are uh, heavy up there. W- Witness, I you know for for the for the acting, you know, if you want to show someone the the best of Harrison Ford acting, at least how he was recognized by uh, the academies and what have you, he was nominated for best actor for Witness in 1985 i believe um great movie there him uh, uh opposite in amish kelly mcgillis <laughs> um who i think forgot she wasn't amish ever uh, ever since then um but uh he's been in a lot of good stuff even that movie he did with michelle pfeiffer uh that horror movie he did uh what lies beneath in 2000 yeah that was that was a good was, one that was good yeah that was a good movie um I, I don't know how I feel about like Air Force One. It's kind of cheesy and that uber patriotic, you know, stuff and very over the top, obviously. Uh, but he has quite the resume, but you got to put Fugitive in the top five. And if you're not a Star Wars fan or Indiana Jones fan, it might be number one, you know, so for a lot of people. But, you know, presumed innocent, even working girl, he's really good in. Um, you know, the guy has... He's one of the most profitable movie stars ever for a reason, you know, in terms of like box office. So, um, but I didn't know that Fugitive. So 30 years ago was his last movie that was nominated for Best Picture. But it's it's interesting because, you know, you think about people who, you know, turn down this movie and, you know, I don't like to crack on actors, especially actors I like. But, you know, I joke about how often do I joke about Superman 4 and how terrible it is, you know, Gene Hackman said yes to that movie, but no to The Fugitive. You know, that's nuts to me, man. And I'm sure there's a lot... Like, I bet actors, all actors have that type of story. It wasn't the same year or anything, but just the fact that he said yes to some one picture like that and no to a picture like this. I bet a lot of actors have those stories where they're like, dude, I 
you know, I did this movie, but I didn't do that. Like, like Will Smith with doing Wild Wild West instead of the Matrix, you know? Yeah. Like that, that's, that stuff's nuts to me. Well, it, it, um, and but the, the Superman 4 one might be a bad example because that's, that might have been a contract thing. You think they 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 locked him into like four? Yeah, I, I think yeah. It, it, you know sometimes there are those stories about actors they they have to do these inferior sequels to things because they're just tied to them like they can't they can't get away from them. Interesting. Okay, I'll buy it. I'm in. I mean, especially being like it. you know the being the iconic villain Lex Luthor. <clears> I mean, they probably they probably thought they couldn't do it without him. I don't know. But there, but I'm sure yeah. there. No, I, I didn't mean to piss on your point because it is. There are probably plenty of where artistic. Uh, what what's the word I'm looking for? Um, artistic prerogative goes wrong. Like you you. It's like oh, I, it, 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 like Alec Baldwin's a good example. He did that Heaven's Prisoners movie instead of God knows all the other shit he turned down and wasn't part of because he wanted to do this movie that I can't even remember what it's about except it was set in Louisiana. That's the only thing I remember <laughs> about it. <laughs> what did what did you think about how this movie ends were you okay with um not seeing you know him like you know getting back home and like putting his life back together like were you satisfied like that it was realized he didn't do it and that's enough for you um because i know we're already at the two hour ten minute mark at that point they probably you know you, you were bringing up but the, you know hundreds and of edits that they made um, was there any mention in, in, in your research on like there was an epilogue or anything like that? Because I, it's the classic. It feels very 80s. The whole, you know, helicopter shot as the car drives down the street at the end of like a crime movie sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I, so it, it ends nicely, I guess. But I, I, I sometimes wonder about that. I am really glad you brought that up because that is on my uh, that is in my notes was that. I, this was a movie where I could have used I, for some reason I just I was I don't know if I could have used it but I was definitely curious what happened to Dr. Kimball after because I was thinking about yeah. it probably would have been a lot different if that movie was made now as opposed to in the early, in the early to mid 90s because the first thing I thought of is that first of all he would have sued the dick off of the Cook County fucking prosecutor's office and the <laughs> Chicago Police Department and then they would have right. settled out of court for I don't know how many millions of dollars. And then he right. probably would have op- he probably would have made optioned it into a into a movie or a television show and then been doing the talk show circuit and he probably never would have practiced medicine again. He probably just would have been like a celebrity and he would have had his the, his wife's money probably would have been return the, the money that he supposedly killed her for would have been uh returned to him if he was exonerated. So I like maybe he would have been practicing like you know because in the movie they go out of the way to show what a good guy he is like maybe he would have volunteered at a hospital or worked at a clinic or something, but right. I think his days of you know being a uh, a surgeon that's on call were would have been far behind him. That that was the that was the little story I created in my head and and I'm glad you brought it up because I, I kind of would have liked to have maybe seen or like a little epilogue like maybe a little just a little title card epilogue thing yeah. that says you know Doctor Kimball. Um, you know, took his it, took his uh, took his uh, wife's estate and like moved out, like moved somewhere to get a fresh start or something, and like worked with kids. Do, yeah, Doctor Kimball donated money to uh, you know, a, a children's hospital and named it after his wife. Or yeah, you know, yeah, you know. or like or something yeah. like the Innocence Project. Like he got involved with that. 
I mean, yeah, right. But, so so we're 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 writing we're writing that now. This is yeah, like, but I, like I think it, you, I think you're right though. I mean, the story was kind of told. It was like you have this you have this doctor who was you know railroaded and wrongfully convicted and went through all this trouble to exonerate himself, and then you had the the U.S. marshal who, you know, in the one bit of character development he kind of has, goes from not caring about his plight at all to all of a sudden it's like. It was like it was almost like he took umbrage with the fact that this big pharmaceutical company was involved in this conspiracy, and it just like it it just, it, it kind it, it is like kind of you said the you know that he wasn't really all that well developed and one of the and it, I, I agree with you for the most part I just think that you know it shows that the character's primary motivation is justice it's not like the detectives involved in the case as opposed to them they just wanted to clear the fucking case they didn't really care yeah right what happened or how it turned out. And then, you know, whatever his lawyer, we can't find the guy, which is kind of a gloss over to make the plot happen. But uh, yeah, and it I think it's because it just ends so quickly. It gets so big and high octane during that final sort of shootout fight scene. And then they, it just like ends like Kimball helps Gerard out. They, they arrest those guys and they walk out and then you're like, holy cow. Like it just it, it goes from here way up here and then it's over. I'll do like quick. Yeah, I'll I'll be honest with you, man. That's throwback, and I kind of miss that a little bit. I kind of miss like because I'm not a big fan of these movies. I'm not gonna say they're objectively bad, but I'm not a big fan of the Lord of the Rings movies. And I know that the 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 Return of the King had like 57 endings or something. It was like half the movie was just different denouements for the different characters. And right. I do kind of miss that about the older school of filmmaking. It was like the endings were so abrupt. It was just, it was, it was like, yeah, we told our story, you know, you've already, you've already been sitting here for two hours and 10 minutes. You probably got to go to the bathroom. Like, let's just, let's just, let's wrap it up. Like you see, you see everything you need to see. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And, I also think that that the why like this movie could be could have been way more complicated. Like you say, like if they if they tried to make it today, they probably would have. If, it probably would have been a way more confusing movie because they probably would have tried to like be too smart or whatever and 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 do too many complexities. Um, I think the linear aspect of it um, made it very accessible for like the average person like you know you're you know my grandmother could watch the, the fugitive and not be like i have no idea what's going on like you know what i'm saying like it's pretty mapped out appropriately and and, and easy to follow but also makes you feel like you're absorbing a lot because it's it's a busy movie they're constantly moving around you're never in one spot for more than a few minutes in this movie they didn't do a whole trial scene at the beginning they mm. got through it bing 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 you're guilty you're out let's move the f it, it was a fast moving movie um because it doesn't it really didn't feel like a two-hour movie to me i was surprised when i um when it was towards the end and i i hit pause to see where i was at and i was like holy cow because i i was figuring like hour 45 or something mm -hmm. like that it just it's just a really and, and movies movies for me anyway that move around a lot to different scenes and locations and stuff like that are always more rewatchable for me than say like 12 angry men which is a, you know a great movie but i and whenever i watch a movie like that i'm like i feel like we're supposed to go somewhere and we're just never going there yeah, you know what i mean yeah or you're watching a play 
rather than a movie. Yeah. Because, yeah. Which right. is, there's nothing yeah. wrong with that, but it's like if I'm, I'm not all I'm not as I'm not the kind of guy who goes to the theater as often as I would go to see a movie. Um, right. But yeah. No, yeah. I mean, I think I think it's a fine line between something being complex and being convoluted. And this movie really kind of uh, straddles that line very well because the story is not overly simplistic. And I mean, it's amazing we got anything at all that's coherent with with, with the way the movie shuffled through writers and plot points. And at one point, I, I read this somewhere. One of the discarded uh, plots was that they were going to have Samuel Gerard be involved in the conspiracy because of a botched surgery or something. And that would have been like re like exactly what you're talking about, like overly arcane, like almost like a soap opera. That would have yeah. that would have been like way, way. I, like, one of the things I wanted to bring up was about the director Andrew Davis. I don't think like he didn't get nominated for best director for this movie, and he had so much to do with what makes the movie successful. Um, you know, some of the shot choices he made, like showing those uh like those helicopter shots to kind of show yep. them whole, that they were trying to go for the whole needle in the haystack thing. I also thought it kind of illustrated how the team, the team of U.S. Marshals was always like going to the high vantage point because they wanted to get mm -hmm. every possible advantage they could uh, in, right. the, in the pursuit. Uh, yep. You know, the, yeah. the, I mentioned the thing about the editing. Like he personally supervised the editing of this movie. Like they had six different, six or seven different editors working on this concurrently to meet their deadline, and he was personally. Yeah, that's nuts. I read that. That's crazy. Yeah, man. that's and, and he's personally supervising all of them. The whole um, idea about what kind of conspiracy could ensnare a doctor like this. Well, Andrew Davis's sister was a doctor, and he asked her what could possibly get a doctor this jammed up where they would consider framing him for murder or trying to kill him. Like that was the thing you, that another detail that I kind of glossed over was that they weren't, they didn't want to kill his wife. They were trying to kill him. Right. And the whole thing right. just went wrong. And then, and there's, I don't know if this is true. I'm on mental floss, uh, a pretty popular website, but it's, they're saying that one of the drafts of this movie had the, a twist and the twist being that Gerard was the one who hired the guy to kill Kimball's wife yeah, as revenge that's what I'm for a botched about. surgery. Yeah, that's, that's what you were yeah. referring to? Yep. That's so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow, what a bad movie that would have been. Yeah, not, not only that, but then you would have to... It's like one of those things where of all that stuff, how would that... Then how, why would he be in charge of the manhunt? Right, it would be like right. that. Would be something that you know. There's there's certain things we overlook in works of fiction, like certain things we grant, like certain suspension of disbelief. The fact that a law enforcement entity wouldn't be aware that some, like, say it was his wife or something, like his wife somehow Doctor Kimball fucked up and killed his wife during a surgery. Mm -hmm. Like they wouldn't know that. <laughs> I, yeah, I, don't know. I, I mean. The, so it's it's amazing how some movies can turn out so great because of a, just a a big t just tonal shift like well, that draft is shit <laughs> we're not doing that you know so I mean jeez man um and I, you know I was reading some other stuff uh, on here like they didn't tell Ford what the questions would be in the interrogation scene so that he had uh, uh like confused look on his face I think that's kind of cool 
Um, I like when movies do that sort of stuff because it does add uh, a certain realism to reactions, and I bet directors eat that shit up, you know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I was just taking a peek at the Oscars for 1994, and Ford had no shot, man. Uh, I mean, the, the people that he was up against, uh, Tom Hanks won for Philadelphia, so AIDS, you know. <laughs> You're not losing to AIDS. Um, Dan- that, and also nominated who lost Daniel Day-Lewis for In the Name of the Father, Anthony Hopkins for The Remains of the Day, Liam Neeson for Schindler's List, mm. and Lawrence Fishburne pulling up the rear for What's Love Got to Do With It, the Ike Turner. Wow. Uh, That's, so, Dude, The Remains of the Day, I had to read that book in high school. It's the single most boring book I've ever read I've ever had the misfortune of being assigned to read in my entire goddamn life. It there's a three-page section of that book where he's just talking about the nature of an error and how to rectify it gracefully. But it goes on right. for what what's three pages? What does that work out to be like 9 1200 words, 1300 it just goes on and on and on. Oh, and then they made God. a movie out of it. And, and the whole the yeah. whole thing from what I remember is basically there's a butler and there's a maid that work in service at this at this at this estate and they're both in love with each other but because of the social norms of the time they can't say it that's the whole fucking movie <laughs> do you think nominated for every Oscar every Oscar fucking yeah I hate that Oscar bait shit man it's like fucking the piano <laughs> yeah Tom Hanks is like give me full-blown AIDS we're going for it <laughs> Give me six months. I'll, I'll get down to 120 pounds. Let's do this shit. Your, uh, your lesion makeup better be on point. It better be. It better be right. Right, right, oh, right. Man. He's like, rest in peace to the burbs, Tom Hanks. This is this is my time now. <laughs> time to get some statues. And he goes back to back with this and Forrest Gump. Yeah. So he goes from AIDS to uh, you know obviously mentally challenged, and he wins both. Yeah, but, and then he was in Cloud uh, Atlas. So, well, and then he was in Cloud Atlas, playing. right? And apparently he's. Apparently he's horrible in the new Elvis movie. Oh yeah, so, I. Yeah. Oh man, I, I. But I saw the trailer for that when I was watching Top Gun, and I was like, "Oh fuck this, man!" They should have cast Miles Teller as Elvis, in my opinion. But I, well, anyway, I don't think Elvis is going to be the problem with that movie. I, I one of the great, I, I heard somebody talking about it because I was morbidly curious how it turned out, and. Somebody made a great point about how if you're going to make a movie about Elvis, you shouldn't have it be depre- like directed by a depressed gay man. Like you should have something to ca- capture like how Elvis kind that kind of rampaging like like macho energy. Like the Boz Lerman is not the right guy for that. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, but um anyway. So, do do you think like uh, he, pro- I'm sure he probably would still have been, uh, you know, happy to have been nominated for an Oscar. Of course, there's. Do you think like, you know, because the Golden Globes didn't really give this movie much love, so it was like one of those rare, you know, ones that the Hollywood Foreign Press didn't love, but the Academy still did. But you think like Ford like looks, you know, or his publicist tells him about the nominees, and they're like, "All right, Harrison, here's the deal. You know, we're we, you know, we're, I got our fingers crossed, but we're hearing Anthony Hopkins, Liam Neeson." Daniel Day-Lewis, Lawrence Fishburne, and Tom Hanks from that AIDS movie. You think he's probably like, fuck! I, dude, he probably wouldn't even fucking gone. He probably would have just chilled out of wherever he was living at the time. Like they, He's like, put this fucking movie out next year. <laughs> Didn't he? And they're like, they're like, no, nah, Tom Hanks is playing 
mentally challenged guy. He's like, fuck! <laughs> Fucking Hanks. Tom Hanks is like, dead. <laughs> Tom Hanks is dead. Uh, yeah. Um, do you think Harrison Ford's like, get me a fucking wheelchair. I don't care who's writing this script. Put me in a wheelchair. Let's do this. Hook me up. I would be retarded, gay, crippled. I want I, like all of it. I, I yeah, want all of he it. Did regarding, he did regarding Henry where he plays a guy who gets shot and ends up blind and he didn't win shit for that either. Yeah, I remember that. Like, oh. I remember that movie. I was going to bring that up. but uh... Written by J.J. Abrams. Really? See, I yes. didn't know that. That's yes. fascinating. A young, a young lad. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, fugitive. I, I don't. I'm, I'm trying to think of other other scenes to bring up. I mean, there's. Yeah, I mean, one that we didn't talk about, which we probably should, is the conflict, uh, the physical confrontation, finally between him and his wife's killer, um, where they're on, they're on the train, and it reminded me of Speed a little bit, you know, and that's that's uh, sort of like the fateful meeting finally so to speak which both movies came out in 93 so you know take your pick on which one did it better but uh again one of those things where you know he if he was a killer he probably would have you know killed this guy or something like that but he he just like handcuffs him to the thing right sort of uh that one that was dirty though when he when he bashed the back of his head against the about the train car and it also oh, yeah. makes sense medically because if you're going to knock somebody out, you go for the back of the head. Good yeah, to know. Yeah, sip of the lobe. I mean, it, a lot of people, like, I, I don't know if you think, this is one of the reasons I've never been in a fight in real life because it's never worth it. You can always, like, hopefully you can talk your way out of it, but more people die in fist fights because they smack the back of their head on the concrete when they fall than it, it like, mm-hmm. like, that's, that's how you get a bad slaughter charge or get killed yourself over some dumb shit at a bar. So Yeah, I'm just I'm just so not into that stuff. That's like uh, no thanks. Um, but, I mean, like you did bring up a good point about how he didn't even like Harrison Ford doesn't kill anybody in this movie. If he was gonna kill anybody, it was gonna be the guy who killed his wife and he couldn't even get himself to do that. He just Right. I, right. I didn't think about that aspect of it. Yeah, so there are some of moments where they're they're trying to show us what that Richard Kimball's a good guy and some maybe two obvious ones where they're doing the roll call and he's the only one to calmly say like here all the other ones are like fucking here (laughs) and he's like yes Mm. here and it's like oh because he's not a killer the rest of them are Mm. got it but it does do a good job with other drop-ins that collectively show us you know what this guy's all about um when you put them all together so um uh, I I don't I don't know I I I know we're up on a buck forty and we've been like shooting over two hours for most of our podcasts but like you said this movie is pretty straightforward and cut and dry so I just want to make sure there isn't anything we're not talking about obviously this movie was spoofed by Leslie Nielsen in Wrongfully Accused um, I believe in the late nineties it was like uh, even the cover was almost the same as the Fugitive um, but also what's cool about the Fugitive is this is still back in the day where the like posters or or whatever had like Harrison Ford bang like is the fugitive and like I like that stuff man they don't really do that that much anymore and usually it's more of the um just the title of the movie and that sort of thing so it it has that old school feel to it um and even though it feels more recent than say like you know Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade which was only four years prior to it um but 
great movie, man, and a great pick. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't want to hit you know pump the brakes if you have a lot more to get into, but I feel like my well's running dry a bit without uh, regurgitating oh. things I've already went into. Oh no, that's okay, man. I um oh like you know we we, we kind of do the uh, the the cultural legacy of a film or whatever, and for this one, I think it was just that. I mean, this was just an, a very good to great movie that as you mentioned it wasn't overly complicated i i just thought one of the things that, that interested me the most i hope I, this is one of our more meandering episodes of everybody who's stuck with us this long we really appreciate it but i hope we learned some interesting things along the way about the yeah. film but uh like one of the things was that this this was like the the president nixon of movies it was like the first american movie to be screened in china in about 10 years so and it was it was yeah. very well received, made a lot of money over there, and they didn't even have to do any like weird, uh, you know, compromising of the content for the cultural censors there. They just kind of the movie was good to go because it was a simpler time back then. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think you know, looking at the the performances and a Andrew Davis, I mean, the '90s really was his heyday. I mean, Under Siege was a hugely successful movie. Uh, commercially and critically, which is very rare for a Steven Seagal starred film. Uh, he did, mm -hmm. and then he did this the year after, and then he did a couple other movies. One of them was A Perfect Murder with uh, Michael Douglas and Gwyneth Paltrow and Viggo Mortensen. That was another one he did. But I, it was just, this is one of those directors. You know, you were talking about how Harrison Ford doesn't get a lot of love from the Academy, and I, I think this, I think Andrew Davis, like I think if we revisit his work a little more. Like you think about some of the choices he made in this movie and some of the like what he was able to make out of just nothingness like a like a turnaround project and so much of it had to do with his vision and his will and some of the choices he made like to make the movie more grounded and to do little things that like you know use art use jet like not use artificial light try to make it look like a real movie yeah. I, I, I was really intrigued, though, to find out that I thought for sure, like, if he had a choice, he would have been the one to lobby for Chicago because he's a big Chicago guy, and that's always what yeah. they associate him with. But it turns out that that came from Harrison Ford, and you can't uh, can't really underrepresent his uh, contributions to the film, especially some of the stuff he did to get into character and, you know, keep the movie consistent. I, uh, I really uh, don't know if... Like one of the things I forgot to mention was just how uh, you know Tommy like Tommy Lee Jones. No, I, I mentioned that already about Tommy Lee Jones. How he kind of came around to the interest of justice. It used to be just about bringing him in, and then but I already, I already covered that. Yeah, I don't. I I liked how you said the thing about uh, how you thought the movie was shorter because I thought the same thing. Like when I haven't seen a movie in a while and I don't know the yeah. answer off the top of my head, I try to I try to think about okay, how long was the movie and how much money did it make. And then I see how close I am after the fact. I, yeah, I think with this yeah. one, I wasn't. I I think I thought it was about an hour forty nine minutes. I don't know why that number. Yes, yeah, so we were both in the same was, ballpark. I was fucking way off. It was a lot long. It was uh, about half hour longer almost, and it could have been a lot yeah. longer. Uh, we didn't really talk about Cella Ward's character at all. Um, I yeah. just I remember I saw her build third, and I'm like, doesn't she just get killed and that's it? But I forgot about all the flashbacks and all that stuff, and they. She was she was good, you know, very uh, just a just kind of a generic. I don't want to say generic, but she was just kind of like a radiant society lady. She had real no real faults presented, and then right. you know, she got murdered. But yeah, she did. Obviously, she did a very competent job. She she was another one. She lobbied. She wanted her character to be beaten into a coma, not dead, so that if they made a sequel, she could be in it. 
but they, yeah, I love that. But man. they were like, no, no, she has to be dead. Like they couldn't even yeah, agree. Well, they couldn't even agree on if I think Harrison Ford wanted it to be a life sentence, and the producers wanted it to be death. And I guess the producers won out. I don't know what difference that would have really made. Maybe it just makes the stakes a little higher. But I noticed in, in one of the scenes they said, it was like, oh, well, you know, what, what's he going to do? Just go back to jail? It's like, well, he's going to go back to death row. It's a little different. I I would not want to be involved with Sella Ward when it comes to sequels that she's involved with. You ready for these two? Oh, no. 2004's Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. <laughs> I didn't even see the first Dirty Dancing. Oh, uh, the first Dirty Dancing. It's like, have you we're, we're actually... have you ever been in a long-term relationship with a woman? You've never seen Dirty Dancing? It's like, well, barely. But somehow I, I managed to avoid that movie. Which is is perfectly fitting because that's our next movie. No, no fuck you. No. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Dirty Dancing because, you know, I have a sister who's a year older than me. And growing up, that was like the yeah, biggest movie of the late 80s. So, shut fuck you, asshole. How dare you. My sister has no interest in the Bee Gees. I apologize. Yeah, I know. Uh, um, <laughs> right. uh, also, check this one out. This might be even worse. 2016's Independence Day Resurgence. Yeah, that's a good one. She plays the president. Great. Yeah. Great. <laughs> they were making that movie. They're like, Hillary's definitely going to win. We got to get a lady in this movie. Hillary loses, and that movie sucks ass. <laughs> <laughs> that movie should have been the the 10th Fast and Furious. She was also House's girlfriend. She was like the one that got away on mm. on the house show. She that was like the the girl he never I got rain, over. I rained a lot of hate on this episode, so I hope I didn't upset people who like the things that I shit on, but I'm just having some fun. So, let's uh let's all settle down. Settle. <laughs> settle down. Yeah, well, I th- I think uh like I said, this is one of our more twisty and turdy episodes in terms of It was a fun one though. I, I, I had well, it's fun always fun, you know. Johnny. You always make yeah. it fun. Um You make it fun. Oh, How dare you? Oh, go on then. But um <laughs> we're uh Yeah, I think I think we've reached about the end of the rope here with uh with in terms of topics, but I think uh you know, again, I don't regret picking it. I think it, I think it's a great movie and uh, I agree. Great I, 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 I do agree. I, I forgot to mention your your tweet that you put out about <laughs> about the Oscars was fucking funny. It made me laugh about how it's like Top Gun Maverick should be best picture or cease to exist. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel very strongly about that movie. Like I was thinking about going to see the new like I'm I don't really want to see it like the new Thor movie. I was like. I was mm-hmm. thinking about seeing it for like half a second. I was like, I'd rather see fucking Top Gun again than watch that. Dude. That's shit. Um, yeah, Kathleen and I are trying to lock down a sitter to go, so she can go see it on the big screen. So we're going to try to do that maybe this this uh, this weekend because I, I, I'd like to see it again too, you know? Good call, man. But uh, anyway, uh, we are... We're at the end of the rope here, so we want... we Johnny, I, I am very curious about where we're going next since... Uh, now there's a. It seems like this kind of a choose your own adventure. You had your mind made up, and now you might have make you might be making a game time decision. So where are we at? I right. I had one movie in mind that was post two thousand. I knew I wanted to do a comedy because we haven't done one in a while, um, and it, it feels like we're hungry for it because we 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 went a little wild on this movie, which is obviously not a comedy. <laughs> but I changed gears. 
and I thought of this movie because of something we talked about on the Fugitive podcast, which was U.S. Marshals, but we didn't talk about the lead in that movie, Wesley Snipes. Mm-hmm. I watched this movie the other day, and I had such a f- of uh, I was so happy to watch it. Uh-uh. Again. It was so fucking awesome that we have to go to 1992 and do White Men Can't Jump. Okay. All right. I had I kind of had a feeling you were going to pick that. You uh you you were talking about it a little bit on social media and I was like, I wouldn't be surprised if that's our next movie. But Yeah, I, I just I was like scrolling through movies. I don't know if it was on HBO or whatever, but and then it came across my eyes. And I was like, fucking white men can't jump. I'm watching this right now. And it was like, you know, the, the whole family was asleep and it was just me up and I was like, I'm watching White Men Can't Jump. And I watched it and I had a blast. So I'm going to rewatch it again for the sake of the uh, podcast and that sort of thing. But um, really excited to check that movie out. I know it's probably not going to be one that's going to give us our biggest view count, which, by the way, thanks everybody who's been listening and and uh, checking us out. And our Godfather podcast is, is really running away with the, the title as we approach 15,000 downloads and views, Mike. So good for us, our little podcast here. One of five billion movie podcasts. But yeah, White Man Can't <laughs> Jump. So you... So you digging that? You oh, yeah. that pick or what? oh yeah! I think I, yeah. I think I was the one who I have that on our list. I think I, I was. I think one, you put it on the it, list. But yeah. yeah, I haven't seen it in quite some time, and I'm really looking forward to revisiting it. Yeah, it's. It, I ha, I'm not gonna you know give him my full thoughts on that, but man, it's such a good one. But um, yeah. So anything else, Mike? Before I take us on out? No, take us out, man. All right. So again, yeah. Thanks everybody. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your preferred platform. Share us with a friend who likes movies. Uh, you kind of get an idea of what me and Mike are all about, and as we move along into our 42nd or 43rd episode uh, upcoming. But uh, it's been a lot of fun. So thanks for sticking with us, and uh, we look forward to our next podcast, which will be our last before me and Mike hang out. Uh, so we're excited to talk about the comedy white men can jump in two weeks from now but we hope you enjoyed this one and until next time be kind rewind relax and we'll see you around well shit sheriff i guess i'm just gonna have to take over your investigation